In Southeast Agnet's Ag and Review for the week ending September the 5th, we mentioned that the Environmental Protection Agency had finally released the maps which detail the extent of the waters of the U.S. proposal, and those maps, handed over to the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, show the vast sweep of EPA's proposed waters of the U.S. rule. National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Ashley McDonald called the maps a smoking gun for agriculture and deplorable that they were kept from the public. We think it's because they give a very good visual representation about the extent of their proposed rule. And that runs contrary to their argument that they're not expanding the Clean Water Act and that they are limiting their authority because this clearly shows that every water across the United States is now subject to the Clean Water Act. NCBA alleges the maps show individual states facing upwards of 100,000 additional stream miles that could be regulated under the proposed regulation. And McDonald says EPA's maps prepared by the U.S. Geological Survey and separate maps for ag groups done by consulting firm Geosyntec use the same data sets. Now that we know that EPA actually has almost some very similar maps that they had developed or had USGS developed for them, It at least gives us an idea that EPA did know how far their proposed rule would reach um, because they could see on their own map how many ephemeral streams, which are dry ditches and perennial streams and intermittent streams there are across the United States. McDonald says the maps show EPA knew exactly how expansive their proposal was before they published it. She says the Ag Group's maps are more conservative than EPA's and just looked at 35% of the intermittent streams. So with that said... If you just map 35% of the ephemerals, you see just the sheer amount of land mass that that touches. And so people can get just a feel of how that's going to impact them. Because on our maps, you can zoom in to the farm level. You can actually see your operation, and you can see that an ephemeral stream connects your stock pond to a, a larger creek that will now be a, you know, a jurisdictional water. You can see those maps online at science.house.gov. And speaking of WOTUS, there was also talk this week that the House GOP has decided to bring up the bipartisan bill to stop the waters of the U.S. rule and the science rule underpinning it when they return from recess next week. American Farm Bureau's Don Parrish had this to say. I think it shows that there's pretty strong bipartisan support for this legislation. I think it's also a testament to the kind of effort that farmers and ranchers are making around the country to raise this to members' attention while they've been home on August recess. And I think there's a broad recognition that the administration has gone too far with this proposal. But will the House's strong support to block a sweeping increase in EPA water jurisdiction and with it land control move the Democrat-controlled Senate? I think it is going to put some pressure on the Senate. And I think what this does is give us more opportunity to start training our pressure on the Senate. Clearly, I think the Senate is going to be more deliberative, but... Part of that deliberation is that they need to start considering what the real impacts of this regulation is going to be and the kinds of activities and roadblocks and obstructions that EPA is going to be putting in the way of jobs with this Waters of the U.S. proposal. Now, the proposal has been the top issue for many in farm country who see it as a huge federal land grab that would affect most ditches, farm ponds, prairie potholes, water tanks, and even puddles. EPA says agriculture is largely exempted, but even its own water map suggests its proposed rule will have a broad reach. But Paris says it's not just about agriculture. You know, there's over 45 associations here in town that represent everybody from folks that build roads and homes to schools and infrastructure for drinking water. And I've got an idea that a lot of these people are going to key vote this issue because it is so critically important. 
So important that Paris says lawmakers should be held accountable for their votes on this, and in farm country, they may well be in a crucial election year. Well, Tyron Spearman had a story this week about how peanut usage numbers continue to climb. Peanut stocks and processing has been released for the month of July, the 12th month of the marketing year, and it's good news for peanuts. They were up 2.8% overall in usage of peanuts, and now that makes it for the year up 2.1%. In July, Shellers milled about 394 million pounds. That's 2% more than the same month last year. Commercial processors used 184 million pounds of shell peanuts. That's up 2.8% from last year. Also up for the year was the government purchases of peanuts and peanut butter. For the year, they were up 11.8% to 31 million pounds. Most all categories showed improvement. Peanut candy up 3.6%, snacks up 7.3%, peanut butter down just slightly at 0.8%. Overall, edibles up 2.1%. I'm Tyron Spearman for Southeast Agnet. Cindy Zimmerman had a story this week about how GMO fears continue to climb here in the U.S. Experts say the general population in the United States is increasingly developing an unjustified fear of foods with genetically modified ingredients and suspicions about biotechnology in general, according to Dr. David Just of Cornell University. There's a large and growing number of consumers that now stigmatize GMOs in the U.S. Consumers associate GMOs primarily with some unquantifiable health risk. Consumers tend to lump foods that are labeled as having been genetically engineered together with foods that are highly processed, infused with chemical preservatives, and factory-produced foods. Dr. Just recently testified at a congressional hearing about biotechnology that many consumers are starting to adopt these beliefs about GMOs without understanding that most of the genetic modifications to crops have been made to cut down on the use of chemicals to control pests and disease. He says that a growing number also believe there's something inherently unsafe about GMOs, despite the fact that extensive scientific evidence shows no human health risks. The industry, when consumers are presented with direct explanations of the direct benefits to consumers, they are much more willing to accept the technology. They recognize this is science used in their interest. To find out more about GMOs, go to gmoanswers.com. I'm Cindy Zimmerman, Southeast Agnet. And to wrap up this week's podcast, Everett Greiner had a commentary concerning water requirements. I suppose there are plants uh, that will grow without water, but not the kind that we plant to eat. I mean, somebody has figured out how much water it takes to grow some of our most consumed foods. I think these estimates came from California, and I'm sure they'd vary in other locations, but, uh, well, here goes. You can grow a grape on less than a gallon of water. One strawberry takes less than a gallon also. But let's go to the other end of the scale now. One tomato plant requires three and a half gallons. A head of lettuce needs over three and a half gallons. But at the top of the list is broccoli. One stem head of broccoli must have over five gallons of water to reach maturity. Now, as I say, I think these numbers originated in California. But, you know, I have my doubts. I mean, an acre of tomatoes has nearly several thousand plants. Do all of them require three gallons? Where I live, that would drown the plant. That's Ag Review for today. Everett Greiner, Southeast Agnet. You can hear those and even more reports from this past week at our website, southeastagnet.com. Randall Wiseman, Southeast Agnet.